Welcome to the Abridged Presidential Histories with Kenny Ryan, episode 28C, an interview on the reactive racism of Woodrow Wilson with Eric Yellen. I'm excited to welcome Dr. Eric Yellen to the show today. Eric is a associate professor of history and American studies at the University of Richmond and author of Racism in the Nation's Service, Government Workers and the Color Line in Wilson's America, which is exactly what we're going to talk about today. Eric, thank you so much for your time. Good to be with you. In uh, my recent episode on Wilson, I discussed how he resegregated parts of the federal government. So we all know where today's episode is going. But before we get to that moment, I'd love to turn the clock back and lay some groundwork so we can really understand that impact and the context. So let's start with, like, when did the federal government first desegregate? Was that something that came during Reconstruction, later, earlier? And, and even that word desegregate, I, I, you know, is, is, is that an accurate word to describe what's happening during this time period? That's a great question, because if we're going to talk about what the Wilson administration did, we sort of have to understand these words like segregation and, and, and even racism in the time period. We'll have to sort of figure out what they meant by that and what we mean by it. But segregation uh, is a kind of way of organizing people, right? And so to say that the federal government segregated under the Wilson administration uh, is accurate because in that period, uh, Af- African-American federal employees were organized by race and, and um, separated out from white workers. It's important to know that's really the first time in the Wilson administration that that's a deliberate effort to separate black and white workers by policy. So to say that did 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 um, the federal government desegregate before 1913 isn't quite right. African Americans had worked within and for the federal government from the beginning, either as enslaved people or free workers. They helped to build all the buildings you see in in, in Washington D.C. today, the oldest ones. Um, and so they were, when whether they were bricklayers or they were digging or whether they were painting, African Americans were working alongside white workers and 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 lots of uh, um, a fairly diverse set of of people building the capital from the beginnings from, from 1790. And so that's not segregation. That that's slavery, right? We have we have enslaved people who who are working against their will and free people who are working for a wage. Um, not necessarily equally, there's certainly racism and exclusion, but segregation, this sense of some people will be here and some people will be here and we need to keep them separate, uh, that's not an idea that really emerges until after slavery, right? Because slavery, the the line between free and unfree is so clear and so racialized by the early 19th century that there's no need to come up with another system for hierarchy and separation, right? Segregation is essentially a tool to solve a problem. The problem was that there was no more enslavement. So so there's no desegregation before 19-teens because there's no segregation. There is racism, of course. There are hierarchies, there's racial thinking, there's inequality, Um, but the, the notion that a kind of managed system of segregation doesn't exist as an idea until the end of the 19th century. So, What's the federal government look like? Say when the when the Civil War ends, yeah, uh, are there just no black people, you know, in the federal government? When do African Americans start working for the federal government, and is it different experiences in different departments for them? Uh, two good questions. First, there are African Americans in the from the beginning, right, from the founding of what was the what would be the capital. Um, the capital is located in 
to the area along the Potomac in 1790. And they're African-American. They're from the beginning, both enslaved and free. Uh, and they work, again, both within the federal government and for people who work for the federal government in the homes of government workers. Um, and so there's, there, and that area, and ultimately what will become the District of Columbia, has one of the highest proportions of African-Americans in the country and always will. So um, the, it's usually somewhere between 25% and a third of the District of Columbia is African-American, which means that your labor supply, right, is gonna be a third to 20, 25% to a third African-American. So they're always there. Um, and so the the difference is, do they have these sort of civil service clerk appointments, right? Do they, have, do they work um, uh, not as custodians or laborers or blue collar workers, but as, as, and that the first appointment is usually said to be a man named Solomon Johnson in 1864, who Lincoln appoints, right? Remember in this period, in the, uh, before the uh, um, 1880s, the, all of these jobs, these higher level jobs come through appointments, right? They're political. Sure. Yeah. Yeah, and so the first appointed job, political job goes to Solomon Johnson in 1864, but there are lots of other African-Americans who are working as messengers and what are called char women, these women who come and clean up and empty out mm. waste paper baskets. And so it's a, it's a, what we would understand, it's not a term they would understand, but it's a term we would understand as an integrated space. There are black and white people for sure working um, through the 19th century. So when, when you get up to around 1912, when you get up to around Wilson's walking through the front door, what do the different government agencies look like? You know, like I know the army was still segregated, you know, don't know about the Navy, don't know about the Postal Service, you know, were there some departments that were kind of more havens of equality and welcoming or what, what did it look like? Because I mean, for us to say Wilson's going to resegregate things, you know, it, it makes you think, okay. Well, how widespread was, you know, African-American and white people working together before he's yeah. going to muck it up if, if that's going to be the story? Yeah. So as you get to the end of the 19th century, so Solomon Johnson is the first, but there are about 600 of these appointments over the next 20 years. Um, and so by the time you get to the, to, let's say 1900, you've got African-Americans working at all levels of government and in all offices. Um, and no, none of those offices are by policy segregated. Are there occasional supervisors who are mean to black workers or think that, they, that their black workers are in, unequal? Sure. And so the, we, we know there are scattered reports of, of people alleging discrimination um, through the civil service system. But on the whole, no, it's illegal. To, it's not it's legal. There's no legality. There's no policy for segregation right. in these offices. And so, um, and these are the reason that there are so many African-Americans working in, in um, these offices because of Republican Party politics. The Republican Party uh, sees as part of its purpose into the end of the 19th century, black equality, black political equality, not necessarily social equality, but certainly black political equality. And then there are also political calculations. The Republican Party wants to be a national party. Mm -hmm. uh, by the end of the 19th century, there are there's so few white Republicans in the South that the only Republicans in the South are black people. If the, if the party wants to understand itself as national, then it, ha then it has to deal with black politicians in the South, yeah. right? And so if when, and, and the other piece of this is that there's a quota system. The United States as a whole has to be represented within the federal government. So when appointments are made, there are, there are uh, questions of efficiency and, and, and whether you're competent. There are also political questions of, whether, of who you know. And then there are regional questions of are all regions represented within the federal workforce. And so if you're going to appoint, if it has to be political, 
and it has to be somebody you know. And the Republicans have controlled the federal government pretty much from 1860 forward until 1912, with very brief under Cleveland. Um, then all of that is going to be a Republican system, and that's how you get lots and lots of black people appointed from the South because they're not going to appoint white Southerners because they're not Republicans. Um, and so there's so. All of this is to say, yes, there are lots of black people working at all levels. Um, the Treasury Department and the Postal Service do seem to be um, have more African-Americans. They also have more government workers, right? We're, we're still dealing with a government, federal government so much smaller than the one we recognize today. So the big branches are Treasury and Agriculture and Postal Service. And so those are that's where the greatest patronage opportunities, right? Appointment opportunities are. And so that's where you're going to find the most African-Americans because they that's how they get those jobs through those appointments. You had asked about military. Um, so, right. So when uh, African-Americans are, are brought in to fight for the Union Army, they're segregated yeah. into, right? Uh, the Navy doesn't really exist at this point. The Navy will sort of be born in the 1890s with, with um, the war in Spain against Spain and in Cuba. And so that the Navy's hard to segregate. It's hard to segregate a ship. Yeah, right? I, I was definitely wondering about that. You know, the army, it's like, we have a black unit over there. How's the Navy do that? And they largely do it through job, which job you get. So na black naval, black shipmen are more likely to be in the mess unit, right? Working yeah. in the cafeteria or cleaning, right? So they're not spatially segregated, but they're segregated essentially by job. In terms of the Navy Department in Washington D.C., that's that's a, the State Navy State War and Navy Building is an unsegregated space by policy. African Americans work in all levels and uh, in all offices there. And, and now I'm curious too. So this is roughly the state in Washington D.C. How did that compare to what private businesses and local governments were doing in other regions of the country? You know, like West, North, South. Was the federal government a leader? or a follower in workforce uh, desegregation? I know not the best word, but it's the word I got right now. <laughs> sure. So segregation, the rise of segregation is tied to industrialization because that's when how you, you need to organize workers into tasks, right? Prior to industrialization, you're just talking about farm labor. And right. farm labor is, is disparate and separated. And certainly there are tasks and certainly there are racist uh, overseers and all of that, but a kind of managed regimented segregation is really industrial. So as the South industrialized in the 1880s, you see a rise of systems of separation. Um, and it's not always spatial arrangements as much, it's more often job arrangements, who can have which jobs. So uh, cotton mills in the South, uh, African-Americans cannot work in positions above janitor or sweeper, uh, custodian. Um, so, so they're not spatially segregated. Those Black sweepers are walking by white workers all day long, but what they can't do is work work on the machines. They can't rise up to management, right? And so that's that's a kind of southern segregation within southern industry, and that proliferates across the country. Mm. It just ultimately will depend on the employer, the supervisor. Um, African Americans are primarily in the South until the 19 teens, when when the great Mig first great migration occurs just before World War One. Cities like Chicago and Detroit. New York will get large influxes of Black Southerners. Many of them will experience segregation, what we would call de facto segregation, a segregation of, um, uh, of, of, of 
local orders and specific supervisors, not necessarily legal segregation, but throughout the country, this system of imagining that African-Americans are really worthy of only a certain set of jobs, um, that's, that's you can find everywhere uh, by the turn of the 20th century. And that made the federal government in Washington, D.C. actually kind of an island because the federal government was not segregated and because uh, Washington, D.C. was never segregated by law. Um, the uh, African-Americans move. This is why the black population in D.C. will rise substantially first during the Civil War as, as ensl- formerly enslaved people seek freedom. But then again, at the turn of the 20th century, as segregation sort of rakes across the country, D.C. is this magnet because you not only can you get a job there, but you can live there. You can send your kids to school there. There's a segregated school system, but it, the black system has a lot of power uh, and, and a lot of money relative to school systems elsewhere in the country. So it's, yeah. it's a place of real opportunity. And then the federal government um, is not, cannot segregate. Uh, there are movements to segregate it by legislation and they're always quashed by Northern Republicans. Awesome, awesome. Thank you for that context. Sure. And so let's talk more about Woodrow Wilson him, himself. Uh, sure. he's, he's a guy who's born in Virginia and he grows up there uh, during and after the Civil War do we have any sense of what pre-presidential Wilson thought of race in America? Uh, does it come up in his uh, career in universities? Does it come up in his political campaigns? Yeah, so my friends in here in Virginia won't want me to tell you this, but he, he didn't grow up in Virginia. He's born here and he's gone by age two. Uh, he's oh. really raised in, in Georgia and South Carolina uh, because his father, his, fa- his family, his father's a Presbyterian minister. They moved south. Thank and correction. <laughs> Sure. And um, he, he'll he experience a sort of what kind of his teenage coming awareness really in, in, um, in Columbia, South Carolina during Reconstruction. His family moves south and his father, neither of his parents are born Southerners. Uh, his mother's actually English, but they, um, his father adopts the Southern cause full-throatedly, pro-slavery, pro-Confederacy. And Wilson grows up in a, in a, a house first dedicated to slavery in the Confederacy and then dedicated to the lost cause and, and, and mm-hmm. the notion that the Confederacy was honorable and right. Um, and so he's raised with, uh, in, a, in, a, in a context of, of, you know, of, of clear racism, of hierarchy that black people are not worthy uh, and not equal to white people, a, a, a context of white supremacy. Um, and it's in many ways easy, right? He's, he's, he's a relatively privileged white man there's not he doesn't write extensively about black people when he does he uses racist tropes just pretty much like everybody else he knew um and there's but there's not a lot of racial thinking right there's not a lot uh, that you find in his in his early life it's just it's just clear that when he does address black people he he's patronizing and and views them as unequal um when he gets into his academic career you don't so much see writing about African-Americans as you do writing about um, Anglo-Saxons. And um, he's interested in what kinds of traits and, and like scholars, like white scholars throughout the country and really throughout, throughout the Western world, he's you know, adopting these ideas from Germany and, and, the, and England about who's really eligible for democracy, who's eligible to lead. And in his book, The State, he'll, he'll write that Anglo-Saxons have a particular um, penchant for for good governance, for democracy, and for good management, and so that you, you see racial thinking there. 
African-Americans show up in his history of the American people in which he says essentially that they were um, thrust too early into democratic responsibility, that reconstruction was a mistake um, because they're, they were childlike and not ready for um, to be full citizens. And so he's, he adopts a very common racist view of, of, of African-Americans as not worthy of American democracy and, and kind of leaves it at that, doesn't really suggest that anything has changed by the time we get to the 20th century. And when he's running for president, does it come up? Does he try to court that black vote? Does he yeah. make any promises or change his tune at all, you know? Yeah, so the Democratic Party at this point is just replete with racial demagogues, right? People who <laughs> who are beating this white supremacist drum as, as a part of electoral politics. They're also just... Um, in southern states, disfranchising not just African Americans but poor white people. There, it, we're talking about a state, a, a kind of government system in which a very few white Democratic leaders are setting themselves up essentially as kings throughout the South. Wilson doesn't have to have anything to do with that because he's actually a New Jersey politician. So right. when he when he runs for governor uh, in 1910, it's not really a huge issue, um, and and he doesn't really have to address it. He'll deal with he'll. He's, he is responsible for ensuring that African-Americans don't arrive at Princeton when he's president there. But beyond that, there's not a lot of, of again, kind of racial thinking or dealing with African-Americans. So he's kind of an unknown. And this is what will lead uh, William Monroe Trotter and W.B. Du Bois and, and, um, and other black leaders to sort of be curious about him when he's running. They're disappointed with the Republican Party because mm-hmm. the Republican Party's racial egalitarianism has also started to fade by yeah. the 19-teens. Taft yeah. is not nearly as... as um, as clear about egalitarianism as, as actually Theodore Roosevelt was, who um, certainly did not view black people as equals, but did guarantee their political equality. So they'll, they approach uh, directly Wilson, and he says that he plans to treat all Americans as Amer- equal Americans, yeah. and that he will be the, pre- the, the line is, I'll be the president of all Americans. So Trotter and Du Bois, who really very much want to hear that, and believe in a lot of the economic policies that the yeah. Democratic Party or the, the progressive wing of the Democratic Party stood for. Yeah. That, they're satisfied with that. And so Trotter and Du Bois and others will promote him. Du Bois and Trotter both say that they vote for him. Um, and so that to the extent that it comes up in the campaign, um, you know, Wilson says, yep, I'm, I'm fine. I, I view Black people as political equals. Taft has connections to the Black patronage system. So actually, most people think that most Black voters, people who can vote primarily in the North, vote yeah. for Taft. Roosevelt is trying to reconstruct a party all on its own. And one, of the ways, one of the ways he'll do it is try to appeal to white Southerners who don't want to vote for the Democratic Party, but can't stand the idea of voting for Lincoln's Republican Party. And so uh-huh. he'll try to pull into the Progressive Party white Southerners. So this, so he embraces what are called lily whites, people who um, want to keep politics in the South white, but don't want to be Democrats. And yeah. when he does that, black uh, uh, Republicans just you know can't have anything to do with him. And so he doesn't. Roosevelt loses any support from black politicians. And so it's primarily with a divided between Taft and Wilson, with the majority going to Taft. So when when Wilson becomes president, and when the government did start to resegregate or, or segregate for the first time, it sounds like. <laughs> um, was this like an announced policy or is it something they try to make happen co- uh, quietly and what parts of the government were impacted? 
Yeah, it's not an announced policy and it is absolutely done quietly. So it comes up first in a cabinet meeting. We see, we know in uh, Josephus Daniels, who's the secretary of the Navy, who is an outright white supremacist. He participated in a, in a coup to overturn, overthrow black government work, leaders and politicians in Wilmington, North Carolina in 1898. Uh, he brings it up and apparently, in his, by, according to his own minutes, in an April meeting of the cabinet. So remember presidents take office in March in this period. So yeah. April is pretty much as early as you can get going. He brings it up in a, in a meeting and Wilson says, essentially, okay. Um, and so Daniel says he's going to segregate the Navy um, and and uh, William McAdoo, the Secretary of the Treasury, sort of seems to agree. But there are other things that McAdoo and the Treasury are involved in at this point. So it really is lower level administrators, appointees, uh, the assistant regist- uh, secretaries of treasury uh, who are really imposing, go through offices and they're quite alarmed actually, right? All of these are Southern Democrats. Really what Wilson does is bring Southern Democrats into Washington and into the federal government mm-hmm. uh, again, really for the first time since the 18, you know, fifties. Um, and so they're shocked, right? They're genuinely surprised by how, how many black workers there are and how empowered those black workers are. So they start going office by office, um, ordering, literally separating people. Um, John Skelton Williams, who's an assistant secretary of treasury, changes the address policy in treasury correspondence so that black uh, people are never addressed as sir or madam. Um, Literally, this will sort of get woven into government policy, but by these lower level bureaucrats. Wilson never said issues an order, right? He never says it issues a direct order. He certainly knew it was going on. He, he gives his permission. But the first time he'll really say anything that we could be deemed public about it is when um, uh, an officer of the NAACP uh, uh, writes to him in July 1913 and says, you know what's going on? And he writes, yes, and I support it. I know. And so that's when we know that uh, Wilson endorsed it. But I don't think there's any evidence that he was in control of it or sort of himself walking through these offices and ordering segregation. It's really his administration that's that's doing that. And there's there's two actually questions I want to ask as follow-up. I'll, I'll start with, you know, I, I've read some folks posit that the segregating of the government was done as a kind of a, a branch towards Southern politicians to get them to buy onto the progressive agenda. You know, like, hey, you vote for all this economic stuff we want to do that maybe you oppose, maybe you don't care about. And we'll segregate the government and you'll be happy because you're racist. You know, uh, what's your take on that argument? I think that certainly Wilson, there's evidence that Wilson believed that there was only so far he could push Democratic Southern representatives in Congress uh, on any matter, right? That he needed them for his economic program. But I think that um, description denies uh, the reality of Southern progressivism, the belief among white Southern leaders that there were need, there was need for change, right? Need for progressive politics, need for, for example, a national economic policy that was fairer to uh, poor people, fairer to farmers, uh, the lowering of the tariff and income tax. You know, we, we have this idea that a conservative on race is 
that 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 conservatism on race is aligned with conservatism on economics, and that's just not true. Progressive politics in the South are shot through with what ideas that we would consider to be, in our own language, liberal, right? That they are, and what I mean by that is that the government should, you know, impose on the economy to make things more fair or more managed, well managed. Lots and lots of Southern progressives they come out of the populist wing. They believe that, um, and and they believe in white supremacy, right? That these things are not in contradiction because right. ultimately progressives, small p progressives, believe in a certain kind of order and harmony, right? That, that capitalism can create disharmony because it creates, you know, uh, poverty and inequality and corruption. Right. And so the way to resolve corruption and, and poverty is harmony, is, is well-managed progressive policies in which the government uh, is open, transparent, and active. And lots of white Southerners believed that. And one of the things that was disorderly or disharmonious at the end of the 19th century was race relations, in their opinion, right? Because African Americans yeah. seem to have, expect too much, have too much power. They they don't they don't want to go back to being enslaved. They don't necessarily want to work. For <laughs> oh no, they slave. don't want to be slaves anymore, right? Wow. And they don't want to work for for essentially what are enslaved wages, right? So they are African Americans are organizing politically and economically, and that to white Southerners is disorder, right? It, it, and and it gets figured as kind of illegitimate and corrupt. And so white progressives imagine that progressive politics can solve that. Segregation is a form of progressive politics because it's orderly and it will maintain harmony. You've a little bit blown my mind. <laughs> so if you if you imagine that these that the the that that the problems are are, are yeah. notions of friction, right? That yeah. that uh, the econ- economy is friction, that politics are friction filled, and social relations are friction filled. How do you reduce the friction? Well, you you create order, and you and if everybody's doing what they're supposed to do, there'll be less friction. Black people stepping out of their quote unquote place in white Southern society created friction according to these white supremacists, right? And yeah. so if we create a system in which they know their place, their place yeah. is at best, you know, legally cl- clear, but also socially clear, then we can reduce friction. And that's the progressive racist view that segregation is progress. I'm like thinking of, I know what comes in like, you know, the 1960s. I'm like, yeah, you guys did not avoid friction. <laughs> no, no. And, and, and in fact, the, fr- the notion that there was friction that black people themselves were creating this friction is also (laughs) garbage, right? The the problem is that white people couldn't deal with black empowerment. And and so that's where the friction comes from. But how do you deal with that? If you can't, if it's no longer legal to kill with impunity or no longer legal to enslave, well, here's an orderly uh, rationalized system that ultimately in 1896, right, will get Supreme Court, favor in the place yeah. before it gets in decisions. Yeah. Yeah. Um, okay. So the other question I want to follow up from, from the segregating of the government that's happening is how uh, did the minorities react to that development? Uh, especially you mentioned Dubois and, and Trotter, like how are these people responding to this? Yeah. So, I mean, you, you asked whether this was public and it really wasn't. And it's, it's fascinating. Officials actually go out of their way to keep it quiet because they're being watched and they know they're being watched. Af- mm. Washington, D.C. is a third African-American. Yeah. The NAACP is founded in 1909. There, There mm. is uh, black politics and a black civil rights movement that exists and is watching carefully to see what the Wilson administration does. So the first thing that happens is, is black federal workers start reporting out to the NAACP and other um, uh, civil rights activists, white and black, what's happening. 
because it's a massive change, right? These are these are folks who may have been appointed 20 years ago, have had promotions, they make a fair amount of money. I mean, not a lot of money, but they make they make middle class wages, they're sending their children to college, they own their homes. And suddenly this, um, not just spatial segregation, but their careers are being cut off, right? They're not being promoted anymore. They're many, some of them are being demoted. They're losing jobs. They're losing wages. So that news has to filter out because it's not a publicly stated policy on the Wilson administration's part. And so they start filtering that out uh, to the first and primarily to the NAACP. And this becomes the NAACP's first kind of nationwide movement. Hmm. Between 1909 and 1913, uh, Operate, they're working against uh, um, segregation and they're trying to do something about lynching, but they're, mm. they're still trying to convince African-Americans to organize in this way and to see their rights this way and battling um, a more gradualist perspective that's embodied by Booker T. Washington, right? So th- there's a lot of internal black politics between 1909 and 1913. 1913, that breaks open and African-Americans across the political spectrum, whether it's m- a more conservative uh, someone aligned with Booker T. Washington or more radical, somebody aligned with uh, um, a radicalizing Du Bois, they all recognize that segregation in the federal government is, is a problem and, is, and a denial of black equality. And so this will become, this will pull a movement together. And so there is, a, there is the closest thing to a, a mass movement that you'll see in this period, big meetings in Washington and Chicago and New York to protest, to, to send petitions, letter writing campaigns, attention brought to the press right it's it's a full national campaign do do any of these guys confront uh wilson personally you know does anybody yeah. show up at the white house and say wilson what the hell man yeah so twice, <laughs> you, you said so, you'd be the pro- the president of all americans you know <laughs> yeah so they're they're writing to both his lieutenants and directly to him so you, you can see letters in the in the um in their records but then you know in two now you know, sort of famous meetings. William Monroe Trotter, who is a, um, a just absolutely brilliant Harvard ed- Harvard educated activist and and uh, political organizer and journalist, makes a meeting with Wilson because he had supported Wilson in 1912, identifies as as not quite a Democrat but uh, uh, um, anti sort of Republican Party and 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 as a progressive and says, hey, we talked. We we met. What's what's the deal? In the first meeting um, uh, in nineteen uh, late nineteen thirteen, Wilson sort of denies and says he doesn't really understand what what Trotter's talking about, and 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 the meeting sort of goes ends with Trotter believing um, that uh, um, that Wilson heard him and that something will be done. And over the next year, it becomes clear the opposite, right? That some. Uh, segregation signs are taken down within federal offices, but are enforced anyway. And so essentially, we'll take these signs down as long as everyone agrees to abide by them. So if you are a black woman in the Treasury Department, you'll agree to go to the bathroom we told you to go to, even though it doesn't have a sign anymore. Um, And more importantly, this this kind of end of careers of black civil servants that was happening is ongoing. And so he returns, Trotter returns in 1914 to confront Wilson again, this time with uh, other, with more organizers, including Ida B. Wells, um, and and they put it to him directly and say, "You've you've betrayed us, and this is a betrayal of democracy. This is a, this is un-American. The federal government has to be a standard bearer of equality." And that and Wilson's response to that is incredibly important. 
The first is that he doesn't deny it. He says that this is in everyone's interest. Um, And then he says that um, essentially that Trotter's complaint is is political as opposed to um, equality based. That you're just whining at me because you you're you're really a Republican essentially. You're really an anti me and anti my party. If you don't like my policies, that's fine. But don't you know try to harass me. And he gets angry. He loses his temper. Wilson will later tell his own personal secretary that he regretted his reaction um, because you know I, I sometimes just liken this to kind of you know. Um, a kind of angry black man moment for Wilson. He sort of can't deal with this brilliant, angry, mm. um, in the right, right, yeah. uh, um, man and woman. Wells is, it speaks as well, yeah. um, and who who put it to him and say, "You, you, your language of the new freedom, your language of progressive politics, don't jive with this kind of discrimination." What's your answer? And he says, and that's when he turns to this metaphor of frictions and says, "Look." You know, we know that there's going to be friction when white and black workers work together, and so we have to resolve it because we have, just like we have to resolve friction everywhere, uh, and every and and this uh, is a necessary policy. Yeah, and the reason that's so important is because Trotter leaves. Trotter knows at this point that it's it's lost and that is yeah isn't going to do yeah. anything, and he steps out of the White House and immediately is met by reporters and recounts what Wilson has told him um, and that goes wide in the press. And yeah. so that has two effects. One is that it, it reveals clearly what's going on and, and there's no more questions about it. But the second thing it does is Wilson's justification also goes sort of what we would call viral, which is that this is necessary, that this is what good government looks like. This is what good management looks like. And that's incredibly important. Wilson has all kinds of credibility on what is good government because he's, his whole career was as a government reformer. He's, um, his his scholarship, his earliest scholarship, is on uh, public administration, on, ma- on management of government. And so for him to say public administration requires segregation for it to be legitimate uh, and clean and uncorrupt, that's, that's incredibly important and creates a legitimacy around segregation and an expectation around segregation that it's not just um, natural, but necessary. Timeline-wise... Did this just happen during the start of Wilson's administration or uh, are like the Wilson years, these eight years, is it just like a slow spreading creep of segregation and, and a rollback of minority employment across the federal government? It's pretty quick and, 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 and sort of immediate. The, uh, these bureau, white Southern Democrats who are appointed to bureaucratic positions uh, immediately start. I mean, to some extent, they argue that they were elected to do this, um, to to come and clean up Washington, both as sort of progressives, but also as racists, right? As, as as people who are going to impose white supremacy. And so they spend. They work busily through 1913, 1914 to impose, not again, not just spatial segregation, but to make sure that African American civil servants, public workers, are not too empowered. And that that kind of um, ceiling that gets erected over black. Yeah. Plays is is um, installed by the end of 1914, and 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 black politicians really don't have any inroads to Wilson by 1915, 1916. There's just not. There are black Democrats, mostly in northern cities. They'll continue to occasionally write to Wilson, um, but there's it, it. The issue will essentially die in, in a political sense because African Americans just don't have access to Wilson in that sense. And then the issues will shift, right? Uh, when mm-hmm. when um, World War One breaks out in in 1914, you know, 
Wilson's attention is shifted. Um, his even his progressive, uh, uh, his political ambitions regarding uh, um, government reform really start to slow, and, and and interest shifts. And you know, the 1916 campaign is really about whether to go to war. Um, uh, uh, and so, there's a kind of when you look in the records, there's a kind of quiet, not acceptance. There are still um, African Americans who will resist. And when you look in the the personnel papers, you see this, you see African-American civil servants getting fired for, quote, uh, uh, um, ill behavior or being mm -hmm. uppity, you know, in mm -hmm. quotes, you know, being because they're resisting the the segregation yeah. or the, the racism. But the political movement really just grinds to a halt and then will be renewed with U.S. entrance into the war because African-Americans see it as an opportunity. The language really is about democracy, right? African-American leaders across the country. In in, home, in black homes, there's a debate, right? That w should we fight for this country? Yeah. Right? Should we fight for Wilson? Um, but in the political sense, political leaders like Du Bois um, will argue for closing ranks, for for supporting the the government, for supporting Wilson, and supporting democracy, because ultimately we sh will show that we're worthy of democracy by fighting. And African Americans sign up. Um, Three hundred thousand black uh, American black men sign up to fight. They are uh, disproportionately mobilized, sent abroad, um, mm. but they're not allowed to fight. They're mm, largely yeah. kept out of combat roles where they can sort of show their heroism and their strength. Um, and so there's a kind of a renewed moment for Du Bois and for Emmett Scott, who was um, uh, uh, the lieutenant of Booker T. Washington. Washington dies in 1915 and Scott kind of takes over the political range. There's an opportunity there to push for equality under this language of democracy, and they try hard. Um, but Wilson pretty much shows from the beginning he's not he's right. he's not going to go along. Um, the most the highest ranking black soldier is a man named Charles Young, and Scott and Du Bois push for Young to be com a commission to get a, a, a um, to have a battalion under him, and Wilson refuses. And it's clear that the not only will the military be segregated, but African Americans will be denied sort of key roles within the. Um, Within the military, and so there's there's a couple of moments, but ultimately, um, again, not acceptance, but a move toward resistance of just trying to figure out how to operate in the system that's really total, right? There's there's yeah. not a lot of not a lot of power that that Black Americans in in federal government have at this point. You know, you mentioned that this was something that's really implemented by the Southern Democrats put in positions. Were there any departments that were kind of spared, you know, that maybe they just like maybe the U.S. Postal Service happened to get a northern Democrat. And so he didn't do this. You know, was there anything yeah. like that? So, no. So, yes. And uh, <laughs> yes, there's differences across offices. Um, so uh, uh, the Agriculture Department is, is often noted as, as um, a place where there aren't a whole lot of African-American workers, but they don't seem to. Um, find a lot of resistance or, or um, racism in their day-to-day -day work. Um, but the no is uh, the head of the Postal Service is Albert Burleson, who is a Texan who is deeply dedicated to segregation and white supremacy. Um, and he will impose, not only impose segregation within post offices, which um, not only is in DC, but national, right? But he'll also um, ensure that black postmasters um, are, are lose their commissions, lose their post their postmasterships and are not, and black people are not appointed to those positions. Um, and so it's certainly the post office is, is, is sees the segregation as much as any, any other place, but certainly 
it's a very hit or because it's not a declared policy, right. because Congress never passes a law that says the federal right. government must be segregation segregated. It absolutely depends on specific supervisors, specific organizers of of office flow, workflow, right? Who's going to be sitting next to whom? Who's going to get appointed? When a person comes to a federal appointment, the, the civil service rules require a rule of three. The supervisor has to be given three names based on civil service tests and competency, right? And they can choose among those three. In 1914, the federal government requires a photograph, comes with your application. So it's easy for um, uh, supervisors to know whether the applicant is black. But even without photographs, um, in a degree from Howard University or Fisk University, what we would call today HBCUs, is enough to tell uh, a supervisor whether the applicant is black or white. And so the rule of three becomes a way for black workers to not be appointed to positions, even though they may deserve them. When the government starts rolling back and starts segregating, I should say, not rolling back, is there a national impact, especially when the word gets out and especially when it does hit the press that this is a policy? Do local governments, anywhere where maybe you were starting to see progress or if people were starting to catch up with the government, does the clock get dialed back? Because you mentioned, you know, Wilson was seen as this authority. Yeah. So the, the federal government by 1912 is an outlier. Segregation has moved into private and, and local governments around the country. Um, so there's not a lot to to change, okay. but federal policy changes. So it'll change in these post offices. It will change in, in treasury departments. Largely, these are left to what um, uh, uh, TAF actually called local sensibilities. So if the... If the um, local office in in Los Angeles doesn't want to segregate, nobody's going to enforce it. If they do in Alabama, nobody's going to deny it, even though there's no federal law endorsing segregation in federal offices. And so it becomes highly localized. But because of a high tide of, of, of racism in this era, you, you, you see this segregation and this denial of, of, of promotions throughout the country. The part that's, that sort of goes national from what from what the Wilson administration did is this justification. And the way you we know that is that Wilson's language of necessity and of good management um, comes back even after the Democrats leave office. And so Republicans in the 1920s start taught when they're when they're asked why is the federal government still segregated? Wasn't this a Southern Democrat? You know, uh, uh, policy wasn't this really Wilson? Why is why are black workers in the Coolidge administration still segregated? The answer is efficiency. Um, the expectation that black and white workers cannot be expected to work peacefully and efficiently together, even though there there was no evidence that right. black and white workers weren't right. working efficiently or or competently or peacefully prior to that. There were there were no massive white worker protests demanding segregation prior to 1912. Um, the Wilson administration imposes it and then imposes the justification for it that sort of people who would consider themselves to be progressives or non-racist can then adopt, right? Coolidge didn't think of himself as a progressive, but he did think of himself as non-racist. He had um, a black friend at Amherst. He had, he, made he had black a black friend. <laughs> yeah. He knew a black guy, right? I mean, he yeah. sort of thought of himself as, you know, he would say, I have black friends, right? He thought yeah. of himself as, as an egalitarian. And yet he had, now has this language from Wilson right. for why, even if you are, quote unquote, a friend to black people, why you would still endorse segregation. And that I think is the sort of national impact of, of, of it's that interview, right? With, yeah. with Trotter, that, that, yeah. that language that ultimately comes out from how Wilson justifies segregation that, that has the biggest impact going forward.
Aside from segregating the workforce or allowing this to happen under his watch, does Wilson do anything else to advance or turn back progress on racial equality and opportunity? So uh, it's a great question. And it's, it's the biggest he, progressive policies in which, uh, um, you know, people who are who own farms and are paying heavy tariffs the, you know, the democratic party runs essentially on, on the concerns about tariff and on, on taxation. Um, you know, all of those policies, African-Americans are predominantly disproportionately poor, disproportionately left out of the capitalist economy. And so there are policies certainly within the Wilson administration that benefit African-Americans essentially as workers, you know, the Wilson endorses a unionization to an extent. And so, to the extent that African-Americans can unionize, they'll benefit from that. Um, but essentially as, as an afterthought, right? As, a, as an outcome of, of policy, not necessarily as a subject of policy. Uh, two places where Wilson does more damage, one is again in, in, in his denial of any kind of role for, for black heroism and black military uh, strength during World War I, his refusal to respond to race riots in 1919, um, Mm-hmm. And, and uh, you know, when African-American soldiers return in 1919, they're met with just extraordinary violence across the country because they come back expecting to be that they fought for doc- democracy and they'll find democracy at home. Um, Wilson does nothing to stem that. And mm-hmm. even when he's forced to make a statement on lynching, um, remember these the years, the peak years of lynching are right around the turn of the 20th century. There's like lynching is somewhat in decline by the time Wilson takes his presidency, in part because segregation has has brought some order. Black people uh, know not to step out of out of their their place, so they'll be um, killed or and 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 um, attacked. Yeah. Um, so segregation is sort of working. So lynching is actually somewhat in decline, and then lynching will spike again in World War One during during the World War One era. And Wilson is uh, asked to say something about it, and so he does. He makes a statement against lynching, mm-hmm. and his example is a German American who's been lynched, and so he says we can't. We can't act like the Germans. He sort of has figured right, the Germans are the violent people, the brutal attackers here. They're the ones who caused World War One. We can't be like the Germans and attack uh, a people violently in, in, at home. So let's not let's not do that. Let's not have lynching. But his example is a white German American. He makes no mention of African American that African Americans are predominant victims of lynching. He says nothing about, and he does not empower the federal government in any way to enforce this. In 1917, there's a massive riot in East St. Louis where um, policemen, National Guardsmen, and local citizens essentially round up all the Black residents of East St. Louis and start shooting them until they escape across the bridge to St. Louis. Uh, The Wilson administration does nothing. They get reports about it. Wilson is asked directly, what should we do? And he says, it's a local matter. We can't do anything about it. It's not a local matter. Actually, there's, a, there's there's state lines. East St. Louis is right on the state line. They certainly could have done something. And it's a massive crime. Uh, yeah. But he he hides behind a kind of states' rights argument that there's really nothing the federal government can do. Was Wilson a racist? Oh, sure. I, you know, and so the question is, um, what what kind of racist? Yeah. You know, the because sometimes when we'll say this, when we when scholars will say point out that Woodrow Wilson was a racist. Folks will ask, was was William Howard Taft a racist? Was Theodore Roosevelt a racist? Was Calvin Coolidge a racist? And the answer is the vast majority of white Americans in this period viewed African-Americans as unequal, right? As not deserving of of, um, 
of equality. The difference between Theodore Roosevelt and, and Woodrow Wilson um, is uh, comes in a couple of ways. One is Roosevelt actually more of a racial thinker. He's more interested in race. He's more interested in ideas like eugenics than, than Wilson really ever was. Um, Roosevelt is deeply dedicated to figuring out how to quote unquote save the white race from um, not so much black people, but from modern life, from urbanization, from he's worried right. that modernity is making the white race weak and that, um, you know, amalgamation that is different kinds of white people um, interbreeding, right? These crazy right, words right. Um, are reducing the power of the Anglo-Saxon white man, right? Wilson, Wilson, like other scholars and white scholars in this period, buys into that. He supports it. He talks to Edward Ross, who's one of the early sociologists who's, who argues that amalgamation is the great threat to the white race. Um, but he doesn't spend a whole lot of time thinking about it, in part because he's a New Jersey politician. He doesn't really have to. And in part because he doesn't seem particularly interested in it. The difference is that he has no political connections to Black people. He has no um, uh, uh, means of supporting and no desire to support Black political equality. Whereas Theodore Roosevelt and William Howard Taft know and are used to Black Republicans. You go to a yeah. Black you go to the Republican National Convention in 1900, and there's lots of black politicians there, and Roosevelt knows yeah. it, and Taft knows it. And you, not only are they there, but we need them because yeah. they have the votes from the yeah. Southern delegations to, to nominate the president, right? They have, they have a certain political power that doesn't exist in the Democratic Party, in Wilson's Democratic Party. So he has no um, connection to black Democrats, really, or to black politicians. And so he he doesn't think anything of destroying this what shreds of black political equality existed and uh prior to him and and they're ultimately gone by the time he leaves the presidency so was he a racist sure was he a different was did his racism matter differently than say roosevelt and taft yes mm. what was the lasting legacy and, and kind of impact of Wilson's policies on race? How long would it take, you know, to un, unspool this from the federal government? So there's a couple of things. One is how long does it take to unspool racial separation and racial and racism, racial discrimination in the federal government? Um, it takes a, about, I mean, things begin to, to unravel a little bit. Uh, in the 1930s in the New Deal. There are, Roosevelt, Franklin Roosevelt will appoint uh, a few of his own Northern Democrats who are, we would consider to be racial egalitarians. And you start to see a few um, black civil servants emerge and a few black appointments emerge. But Franklin Roosevelt is not a racial pioneer. He was actually in the Wilson administration. Uh, he's, in the Navy, he's in the Naval Department and, and endorses segregation at the time. And so there's not a huge change, but there is a change in politics because of the second great migration. There are more and more black Democrats in Northern cities and they have political power and they have um, a certain amount of political power and that gives them access to political appointments, right? And patronage and a place within the Democratic Party. And so increasingly, there are, there are black politicians who can, who can put pressure on Roosevelt and, and Truman for, um, for a place in the federal government. And so that really begins to kind of unravel in the 1940s. And then, of course, Truman will desegregate the armed services in 1948. So, that's, so, it's, so there's, some, there's desegregation in the 1940s. It's really not until the 1960s with the Equal Employment Opportunity Commission and, and the Great Society that we start to see the numbers of black civil servants 
uh, and proportion of black civil servants approach what it was in 1900, where African-Americans see federal government as a genuine opportunity, a place where egalitarian, where equal opportunity is the rule, right? That you can't deny someone just because they're black. You can deny somebody a job just because they're black until 1964, right? um, So the big change happens in the mid 1960s and that's when you do see a rise of of black civil servants and a black middle class in in washington dc that will ultimately collect in pg county and create a um a a place of opportunity for african-americans again the second part the legacy of the question of whether black politics and black public workers are legitimate i would argue is still an issue i would argue Mm -hmm. that questioning Barack Obama's citizenship mm. is is in a line with questioning whether black people are legitimate political representatives and legitimate political actors. Do they operate from a mindset of equal democracy or do they mi- operate from some kind of uh, racial mindset that can't be trusted, right? That's an idea that I, I would argue still uh, exists. Um, you know, Pat Buchanan has called uh, affirmative action in the federal government a spoils system because black people in the federal government are corrupt by nature, right? So those those ideas persist, and and that's I think one an important way to think about Wilson's legacy because the, what Wilson does is question the very legitimacy of black politics and black politicians and black presence in the federal government and black public work. I think this was a really valuable and insightful conversation. Uh, Thank you so much, Eric. If you'd like to hear more from Eric, please check out Racism in the Nation Service, Government Workers, and the Color Line in Wilson's America, and give him a follow on Twitter at Eric S. Yellen. Thank you for your time, Eric. Thank you. Thank you for listening to today's episode of Abridged Presential Histories. Do you have friends who like history? Friends who like podcasts? Encourage them to give the show a listen. It jazzes me up to see how many folks want to listen to these stories from history. People can also follow the show on Facebook at Abridged Presidential Histories or on Twitter at APH Podcast. If you'd like to support the show, you can look it up on Patreon or go directly to www.patreon.com slash Abridged Presidential Histories. It helps me buy books and pay to host the show. And thank you so much to everyone who's contributed so far. The music in today's podcast is a public domain recording of the United States Army Old Guard Fife and Drum Corps. In our next episode, I'll talk to Professor Thomas Nock, author of To End All Wars, Woodrow Wilson, and the Quest for a New World Order, about Wilson's reasons for staying out of World War I, his reasons for entering World War I, and the New World Order he hoped to forge when it ended. That's next time on Abridged Presidential Histories.